If you choose recombinants, there's still a choice. There's so many choices. There's still a choice to be made between standard half-life and extended half-life. How do you discuss that and what were your considerations in that respect? Yeah, you know, Karen, if I think, uh, just look back at my say period in hemophilia and I think about 10 years ago who would have never thought about the multiple choice that we have today. Hemostasis Connect is an initiative of core to ed This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Takeda. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts organization or the rest of the Hemostasis Connect group. For experts' disclosures on conflict of interest, please go to hemostasis on core2ed.com. Hello and welcome to this podcast. My name is Karin Fijn van Draads. I'm a pediatric hematologist and head of the Hemophilia Treatment Center in Amsterdam. Good day, everyone. Uh, I'm Maria-Elisa Moncuso. I'm a hematologist working with the bleeding disorder in Milan, Italy. And today, together with Karin, we will discuss prophylaxis in children uh, with hemophilia. In this uh, evolving treatment landscape, we know that currently the treatment landscape... We are both authors on a white paper on this topic that was uh, recently published uh, in Hemophilia Journal. And it was developed within a group, a collaborative group, which is called the European Collaborative Hemophilia Network. And together with other colleagues, Christoph Male, Gilly Kenneth, Kan Kavakli, Christoph Koenigs, and Jan Blatny. So in the paper, we tried to uh, build a consensus around the, the topic of prophylaxis in children with hemophilia. And I really look forward to discuss some of the key topics in uh, this podcast. So Karen, when we talk about prophylaxis in children with hemophilia, the first question indeed is, uh, when do you start prophylaxis? Yeah, I think prophylaxis should be started as early as possible uh, in order to prevent the two major bleeds that we are afraid for in patients with hemophilia. And those bleeds are intracranial bleeding and joint bleeding. And therefore, in our consensus, we recommended starting primary prophylaxis as soon as possible, ideally before the occurrence of any joint bleed and definitely no later than two years of age. Because the first joint bleed occurs with at the median age of 18 months and the risk of intracranial bleeding is quite high in neonates. It's about two per hundred births. So, Maria-Elisa, we discussed when to start, but now the question is, what products do you start with? Once you decide to start prophylaxis, do you choose replacement or non-replacement therapy? There's a lot of considerations that can be taken into account for this decision. And I would like to ask you, what is your idea about this? What are your considerations that come to your mind when you are in your clinic in Milano discussing this? You know, uh, I think that when we start a a discussion with parents, because we are talking about children, so the discussion is mainly done with family, I think we should address some uh, crucial points. First of all, I think it's also your experience that parents want to know how effective is the therapy that you are going to do, how safe it is for the child. And everything also passed through a very practical consideration because when we start therapy in children with hemophilia, we enter their life. 
So we are starting something that has uh, an impact on daily life. So we also have to take into account the burden that we are giving to the family and to the child. If we think about efficacy, so far we can say that both replacement and non-replacement therapy are effective in bleeding prevention. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, but the consideration is, again, what you already mentioned. If we think about a newborn and we have, let's say, the fear of intracranial hemorrhage, Starting very early could be a game changer. However, if we think about replacement therapy in a practical way, we should address the issue of frequent venous access, which is not easy in a very young child. And so the subcutaneous route of administration of the non-replacement therapy can be a way to overcome such an obstacle. On the other side, you mentioned that the other goal is to prevent joint bleed. We can do it with both therapy approach, but still we have less knowledge about the long-term joint outcome with non-replacement therapy because we had, let's say, decades of experience with replacement therapy, but still we are learning how good can be a long-term prophylaxis with non-replacement therapy for the joint outcome. Yeah, I think this is a very important uh, point about the lack of experience. And as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, it's really for parents a difficult decision to make. And it's very important also for them to make a decision that feels safe for them. Okay, and you touched the other point, safety. So after you explain to them how effective you can be with your prophylaxis, either with replacement or non-replacement. The other point is safety, how safe we are with this long-term treatment. We have to explain to them that as soon as we start exposing to factor eight the child, we enter the period of risk for inhibitor development. And they should know this risk is there at least for the first 20 to 50 exposure days. But if the child becomes tolerant to factor eight, so he does not develop an inhibitor, then the risk is very low. On the other side, of course, if we do not expose by using straightforward non-replacement therapy, maybe we can delay this moment of risk of inhibitor development. We have always to remind that we cannot control acute bleed, let's say post-traumatic bleed, with non-replacement therapy. So the child will use sooner or later some factor eight, and the issue of inhibitor development should be explained also to parents, because I think that the only safety concern still in uh, children with hemophilia is the exposure to factor eight and the risk of inhibitor development. On the other side, we can say that through factor eight, we can reinduce tolerance. So we also have to explain that even if the child develops an inhibitor, he can be, let's say, treated for prevention with non-replacement therapy. But at the same time, we can restore tolerance to factor eight using immune tolerance induction. So, you know, there are several points I think that we should address discussing with the family, explaining the pros and cons, considering that for very young children, the subcutaneous route of of administration in some cases is a very practical consideration that has a very great impact on everyday life of a child and family. So, Maria, Lisa, don't you think that uh, 
the information that we have to give to the parents, like all the points that you now explained, it's a really very uh, large volume of information and also quite complicated. So uh, it really asks for more time to sit with the parents repeatedly and really be sure that they understand all the aspects. I think it's crucial to give their time also to ask questions, to go back and forth on the topics. Of course, it's very different if you are talking to parents with a family history of hemophilia or a new couple who never <laughs> heard about the disease. So there are, it's very complicated, but I think it's doable if you engage them on a path, giving them the opportunity to understand that they are not alone that you will accompany them step by step. Yeah, that's the picture that comes to my mind. We walk the path together and also we have the same destination, we and the parents. And the same destination is, of course, the health of the child and the future health. But the ways to reach these goals can be different. In Dutch, we have this expression, there is more than one road leading to Rome. <laughs> I don't know if you have that expression. In yes, it. we have it also in Italian. But in Italian is that all the roads lead to Rome. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, but if we, if we think about replacement therapy, so let's explore the root of replacement therapy. Uh, when do you use uh, these in your patient and how you decide between... Uh, uh, plasma-derived and recombinant products because when we uh, say replacement, this word uh, includes uh, multiple choices, uh, especially considering the source of uh, factor eight. So coming from plasma donation or recombinant technology. Yeah, so we already uh, discussed how important it is to do a shared decision-making process about a factor replacement or non-replacement therapy. But of course, if the parents choose for a factor replacement, then, as you said, they should be aware that there's two classes, the plasma-derived or the recombinant. And this is also something that was historically well-known, but present parents may not be aware of the plasma-derived factor products so much because recombinant treatments have now become a mainstay in the treatments for many diseases. And when we consider the choice between plasma-derived and recombinant, one of the issues to take into account is the inhibitor risk. And there was an important trial, I think you participated in it, Maria, Elisa, the CIPIT trial, and um, that demonstrated that the inhibitor risk in plasma-derived clotting factor concentrates is reduced compared to recombinant. And once this trial was published, that a huge discussion took place, and this discussion is still going on, whether the results of this trial can be extrapolated to any other patient group. Uh, when I discuss it with the parents, I mention the CIPA trial and I try to put it in perspective as well as I can. And in that way, yeah, I make parents aware of also the academic continuing discussion about the reduced inhibitor risk in plasma derived and that it may be an advantage. But also there is the consideration also that the CIPA trial was done in a period where a lot of new molecules that nowadays we can use in children were not available. 
So it's not easy. Of course, you know, it's a piece of knowledge that we have to use when we address the risk of inhibitor development. But also we have to take into account that really the treatment landscape is very rapidly evolving. If we look at some studies done uh, 10 years ago, they can be already a little bit old considering the new possibility that we have nowadays. So I agree with you. We have to include this consideration, but also put it in perspective. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. And also regarding the plasma-derived factor, of course, there has in the past been a very tragic period in the, well, that's almost 40 years ago now, with the transmission of viral infections. And of course, the present-day plasma factor products are much more safe and the donors are screened. But still, it's a theoretical risk, of course, that should be discussed with the parents. And in my opinion, well, there is heterogeneity in the choice that parents make. Some prefer recombinant and others plasma-derived. And, um, well, uh, so I can see you smiling, so you agree. <laughs> uh, of course, that's the, um, in the podcast, you cannot hear the smile, so that's why I mention it. And you smile even more now. So never mind. So the next question is, if you choose recombinants, there's still a choice. There's so many choices. There's still a choice to be made between standard half-life and extended half-life. How do you discuss that? And what what are your considerations in that respect? Yeah, you know, Karen, if I think, uh, just look back at my, let's say, period in hemophilia, and I think about 10 years ago, who would have never thought about the multiple choice that we have today? I mean, for years, we just had some recombinants, pretty much similar one to the other, and then some plasma derived. Uh, nowadays, we have... Uh, a big step forward that was brought by the extended half-life because, you know, knowing which is the burden related to the regular intravenous injection, the first step was, of course, to adapt prophylaxis to every patient's life. This was indeed possible with extended half-life because uh, if we do less injection, you have um, also better adherence, which is something that, of course, in children, you rely on, on parents' adherence, which is a in my experience. Anyhow, having the opportunity to do less venipuncture also reduced the chance to have central catheters and so on. Here, I think it's good to do a distinction between hemophilia A and hemophilia B. For factor 9, we know that the extended half-life products are so, you know, prolonged in their persistence in the bloodstream. We have, you know, a prolongation of half-life of about four to five folds, the wild type, that indeed, uh, for me, there is no room anymore to use a standard factor nine because we can provide prophylaxis with a once weekly or once every 10 days injection. So I think that this is something uh, really valuable. Yeah, it's amazing. These products have half-lives between 70 and 90 hours or even longer. So this is a real advancement. So maybe uh, you can explain why is it that in factor eight prophylaxis or products, the extended half-lives, why are they limited? Why don't they reach 70 to 90 hours? This is related to the nature of the molecule because you know that factor eight needs to couple with von Willebrand factor when it is injected. And uh, even if we have technology prolonging the half-life of factor eight, uh, this doesn't overcome the cap, the time cap 
opposed by the half-life of umbilibrant factor, which is not the case of factor nine. Factor nine has no carrier in the plasma, so you can somehow modify the PK profile with a little bit more freedom. So this is the main difference. And if we go back to hemophilia A, indeed, nowadays, we have some extended half-life product, but unfortunately, due to regulatory reasons, so currently, we have only one extended half-life product uh, that we can use in children younger than 12 years. We have also have to do, an, as for me, another consideration. If we consider the response to factor eight of children with hemophilia, there is a very huge interpatient variability in the response related to PK, so to pharmacokinetics. So that's why in our consensus for children with hemophilia A younger than 12 years, uh, we consider the choice of a product to be uh, individually tailored. So look at the bleeding frequency, the characteristics of the child, and also the pharmacokinetic parameter, because we can come up with uh, a good response and uh, a very good choice also for a standard of life, considering that the, the chance to have extended of life at the moment for children are limited uh, only to one product. But we know that on the horizon, we will have new, of course, new products for the future. But for hemophilia B, I would say that uh, the answer is uh, when possible, when available, uh, extended of life uh, as the first choice. Yeah, I agree completely with you. There's no issue in uh, not using uh, EHL in uh, hemophilia B because these half-lives are so long, 70 to 90 hours. It's really much more convenient. And unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, no, I wanted to ask if you can give us some, I mean, how do you decide on the regimen? Because, okay, you decide the product, but uh, what about how to use yeah, there's also been historical changes, uh, whereas previously a threshold of one was acceptable, 1% threshold level. And now the WFH uh, has recommended that we make our regimen in such a way that we achieve a threshold of three to five units per deciliter. And this recommendation was only possible because of the uh, EHL came into the play in standard half-life products. If you would aim for a threshold of three to five units per deciliter, this would imply such an intensive regimen that it's just not doable. So this is really um, uh, what we're aiming for now. And you already already mentioned the issue of venous access, which can be quite challenging in young babies. And therefore, in our hospital, we built up the prophylaxis regimen. So we start with once weekly. And uh, when we see that the bleeding phenotype asks for it, we increase it to two or three times weekly in uh, hemophilia A. Maybe this is also good because the child gets, let's say, used to the practice of venipuncture. Usually we escalate quite quickly. I think we also agreed that uh, as soon as you can uh, start with the, the standard regimen, the batteries for the child, but you can start, I, I agree, you can start once weekly also because the family gets used, the child gets used to the practice and uh, this makes the all the process maybe a little bit smooth. Yeah, so we agree that of course we have to take care to prevent joint bleedings and on the same time we have to smooth in the prophylactic regimen and uh, th that's really, I think, 
this is really true pediatrics, how to coach the family. And uh, we have also, f- our nurses are very good in this, in, in you know, training the families and uh, building their confidence. This is an aspect that should not be underestimated. And of course, we are used as professionals to children with hemophilia, but for a family, it's their their precious child and this terrible disease. And it's a lot of psychosocial support and confidence building and coaching. I, t- I totally agree with you. Yeah, this is very important. But I will ask you, if you go to non-replacement therapy, so uh, what do you take into account when you decide to start with emicizumab prophylaxis, so non-replacement? Yeah, so this is another very complicated uh, question with many aspects. Regarding the non-replacement therapy, it's very important to realize that these are only used for prophylaxis, not for the treatment of bleeds. And there are several uh, non-replacements in development phase, like antibodies against TFBI and siRNA against antithrombin. And the only approved presently uh, non-replacement therapy is emicizumab. And this has been used quite a lot worldwide uh, over the last few years. But the data that have been published in very young children is still limited. And there's a number of important questions about prophylaxis in young children. And one of the important questions is what does this mean for tolerance towards factor eight? Because these children use emicizumab for prophylaxis, but as you explained earlier so eloquently, Maria Lisa, when they have a bleeding, they still need factor eight to stop the bleeding. And it will take a much longer time to have 50 exposure days if you're on hemicizumab than if you're on uh, factor eight prophylaxis. And why do I mention the 50 exposure days? Because that is sort of the moment in time where we decide if someone has developed an inhibitor or not. Usually the inhibitors are developed much more early. The median is about nine to 11 exposure days, but at 50 exposure days, when you then have not yet developed an inhibitor, we say, okay, you're tolerant. And this could take years, maybe 10 years, nobody knows. And so this is one of our big questions, like what will prophylaxis with emicizumab mean for tolerance? Will there be a higher proportion of patients who are tolerant or a lower proportion? Nobody knows. And uh, well, you already mentioned that this knowledge gap should also be discussed with the parents. And we also discussed this in our group and we agreed that if newborns or very young children are started with emicizumab, it should ideally be done in the setting of a clinical trial or a well-managed registry to allow collection of data on safety and efficacy in this patient group. I think this is is a very important point. I mean, because if data are limited, the only way that we have also to learn how to do is to, to do collaborative experience because we know that the disease is rare, Uh, It's not easy to have uh, data on very young children also because, as we mentioned before, the median age at diagnosis is around uh, 12 to 18 months. So if we think at the use of a new drug in newborns, I mean, how many newborns we diagnose with hemophilia that early? Not so many. So I think that the suggestion to do our experience in a joint effort, in a collaborative group, building up studies, building up registry, it's something very valuable. 
I couldn't agree more with you, Maria Lisa. This is exactly what is our responsibility also towards these vulnerable children, their parents and the scientific community. And to get back to inhibitor development regarding the choice for factor, clotting factor concentrates or non-replacement therapy. What role do you think the risk of inhibitor development should play in these decisions? You know, Karen, I think you mentioned a very crucial point, and I totally agree with you that let's say we have to disclose what we know and what we still don't know. Yeah. Because at the moment, we have no solution for the unknowns. We have to learn. Uh, I have to say that, of course, parents should be aware of the risk and the different scenarios. If you do a diagnosis because a child is, a, is born in a family with a family history, You can take your time to explain everything because maybe this this child is uh, healthy and is not bleeding. So you have the time to let the parents understand what are the choices and which are the pros and cons. Sometimes you have not that time because you make your diagnosis because the child is bleeding already. And if the child is bleeding, you have to expose him to factor eight. So... The exposure is already there, and as soon as you start exposing, you enter the risk period in terms of inhibitor development. So there, the the situation changes immediately because you have to explain to the parents that, okay, we started exposing him, we started somehow stimulating, possibly, the immune response. So again, the path is different. We can either decide to stop any new exposure Maybe go to for non-replacement, but knowing that at each new exposure in the future, the risk is still there. Or the other way could be that we continue to expose regularly in the absence of bleeding as prophylaxis, maybe completing the 50 exposure day risk period. And because we know, as you beautifully mentioned, that if we pass uneventfully this period, we know that the risk then is very, very low. And any other choice, even going to non-replacement therapy, I think it will be taken with a different perspective, also emotionally, because the risk is very different and each new exposure has a different meaning, a different weight in the life of that child. That's very well said, uh, Maria Lisa. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for a great discussion today. Uh, what I take away from it is that we are both dedicated pediatricians and driven to provide individually tailored therapy and that every child and every family is different and has other needs that we try to meet. And also it's so important to do shared decision-making with parents And in this shared decision-making, there's an important role for us to make them aware of the knowns and the unknowns about the current new therapies. And well, when we discussed it, I was really impressed by all that pops up on the horizon for even newer treatments that are presently under development. And your call for collaboration to... Uh, collect safety uh, and efficacy data in very young children using all these new treatments. Uh, I think we should take that. I personally take it very serious. Yeah, me too. And I totally agree. And I do think that uh, the other point is that we always have to give parents uh, and patients and families the good time to discuss, understand. If they understand well, 
what we are trying to explain to them, we will have the best outcome because they will accept, they will be motivated. And we will also be able to maintain some unknowns without, let's say, the pressure of uh, doing something which is not, uh, not good. So I do think that treatment individualization should be our aim for each new patient that uh, we meet with the hope that the future will give us and them many, many, many new opportunities. So I thank you, Karin. It was really a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. We walk the path together with our patients. Yeah. <laughs> Tutte le strade portano a Roma. I think that's a nice philosophy to end our uh, podcast, <laughs> that there are many ways that our aims can be achieved together. Yes, yes. Thank you, Karin. Thank you. This Hemostasis Connect podcast was brought to you by Courtoed Independent Medical Education. For more information, please visit courtoed.com and select hemostasis.